ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Did you have a box of buttons that you loved sorting through as a kid? Maybe one belonging to your grandma or your mum. There's something so wonderfully appealing about the feel of buttons. As you sift through a tin of them, it's, it's like looking for treasure. Buttons made from glass or fabric, sometimes bone or brass. Round buttons usually, of course, but also buttons shaped like anchors or cats or flowers or really anything else you can think of. Lucy Godaroja learned the button trade at the Knoppen Winkle in the Canal District of Amsterdam. But it was on a buying trip to Milan that Lucy really struck button gold. For more than 30 years, Lucy has owned her own button shop in Newtown, Sydney, called All Buttons Great and Small. And that's also the name of her new book, A History of the Button, From the Stone Age to Today. Hi, Lucy. Hi. What is it, do you think, that makes us so happy about buttons? Because on one hand, they're simply this utilitarian object, but they're somehow joyful. Yeah, I don't know what makes them so joyful, but I guess because they're small objects and they're usually quite beautiful. And if you stop and have a look at them, they have a lot of detail and they are like treasure. And a lot of them can be connected with memories too. There's something that they that we often have strong associations with in childhood, the object themselves or the clothing they were attached to. Yes, very much so. And um, a lot of customers that come in with their mothers who... There was, for instance, a story of a fellow who was about 20 and he came in and his mum was knitting a cardigan for his sister who had her first child. And she said, well, I'm just looking for some buttons. I have these ones, but I'm not sure if they're right. And she brought out some buttons from her stash and her son said, those are my buttons. You can't give them to her. (laughs) So that association of him knowing those buttons as a child and having them on a cardigan, you know. Wasn't permitted for his nephew or niece. I hope that was resolved happily within the (laughs) confines of your store. You could bring peace to this family. I could. So I have lovely memories myself of, of sorting out my Nana's button box. Is that what happened for you, Lucy? When did you fall in love with buttons? Um, that didn't happen for me. I didn't um, have grandmothers that had a, a button box and my mum didn't have a button box either, but she did sew for us and um, she would take me shopping to the fabric stores because I was interested and while she was um, looking through the fabrics, I was like walking around the aisles of what is called in North America the notions section. The, haberdash- the notion section. Notions, which is the haberdashery in our language. <laughs> and um, I just loved that everything was in order and, you know, revolving stands of colour-coded buttons on cards and, and I, I really enjoyed that. So did your mum teach you to sew as well? She did. I used to watch her sew and I used to watch her cut cut out garments for us because she um, she sewed for us as children. And quite early on, she let me use her machine, which um, I was quite astounded about because it was her pride and joy and nobody else really was allowed to use it and I'm the youngest. So, yeah, she let me use her machine and I would sew blankets and pillows and, and things for my toys or for myself. And then when I was 10, I actually made my first dress. What did it look like, your 10-year-old dress? It was a halter dress with a full skirt. It was in blue and white gingham. (laughs) Did it have buttons on it? It didn't because my mother's sewing machine was a 1950 
1958 beige singer in a big stand and it didn't do anything except straight, so it did go backwards. And it had a beautiful keyhole button attachment, which my mum never used, and so she gave it away. Oh. <laughs> so, so by the time I came along, I was like, Where do, how do you make buttonholes? And she said, well, you have to make them by hand. <laughs> So this is your mum who introduced you to sewing. What skill did her mother, your grandmother, teach you on a visit to stay with your family? My maternal grandmother, I only met her when I was five. She stayed for two months and that's the only time that I spent with her because the next time I saw her she came to go straight into intensive care and and passed away in, in Vancouver. But she was an avid sewer and knitter and crocheter and she actually owned a a factory in Brazil that made clothing. And I was like her little puppy dog sitting at her her elbow and everything she did I wanted to do as well. (laughs) And she taught me to knit and I'm sure at the time I did a few rows of knitting and she taught me to crochet. But for some reason I just, knitting didn't sink in but crochet did. So... Yeah, I, I started knitting again. A Norwegian friend taught me again. <laughs> so you come from a line of skilled knitters, skilled needlewomen. Why wasn't there a button box that had been handed down through the generations? Well, my great-grandparents left um, their country of birth and moved 10,000 kilometres across <laughs> the land to the far east, sort of east of Siberia, Vladivostok, area. Um, That area is called the Far East in in Russian. And they didn't have very many things with them, of course, they're traveling. And then my grandparents, they were born in the Far East. But when the, the revolution was coming, they sort of walked across the border into China. Where were they in China? In Harbin in the north. So were there lots of Russian families in Harbin? There were. Um, They were there mostly because of the Trans-Siberian train line, which the the eastern route, which went through Manchuria. And starting from about the 1900s, that train line was being built. So there were a lot of engineers and um, families, and they built educational institutions, primary, secondary, vocational universities, etc., And my grandfather, my father's father, was conscripted into the army and he fought for the Russians in the Boxer Rebellion as well as the Manchurian War, the Russo-Japanese War in in Manchuria. And so he he had been in, in Manchuria for eight years. So because of that, he ended up staying in Manchuria. But both your parents grew up then in Harbin in, in North yes. China. Yeah. And and met and, and married there. Yes. What happened then to that Russian community when Mao came to power? Well, he asked everybody to leave in the 1950s and some people left, like my parents left in 1954. My parents were born stateless, so they never had a passport of any type until they moved to Canada. And... Then in the next 10 years, people were thought, oh, it's actually not so bad here. So they stayed and then Mao started, well, already he had started closing the universities and he just thought the way to um, remove people is to get rid of their education and their infrastructure and their quality of life. Your parents and their families had originally wanted to come to Australia, Mm -hmm. I think. Why didn't that happen? Um, At the time... 
they would have had to have paid their own way. It was my father, my mother, and um, both the grandmothers. And in order to come to Australia for free or for a reduced price, um, they were asking for male workers, so that could have been a male baby. But, yeah, because it was my father and, and three women, the, the, the opportunity didn't arise for them. Where did they go instead, Lucy? They went to Brazil. My grandmother ended up living in Sao Paulo, but they actually went to Rio and they, uh, Rio de Janeiro, and they rented a mansion on Copacabana Beach and then rented all the rooms out to other people. <laughs> and is that where you were born? No, that's where my sister was born. My brother and I were born in Canada. Um, my parents had gone to Brazil with the intention of staying there, but my father, who was a trained engineer, couldn't get work as an engineer. He was only allowed to work as a draftsman. And he said, but I'm a trained engineer. And and they said, well, you need to have a certificate from our university. And my father said, well, I, I can't afford the time. I have people relying on me. And they said, well, you can just buy a certificate. <laughs> and um, they barely had the money to get to Brazil, let alone for a certificate. So they just started saving their money and, and moved further on to Canada. And that's where you were born and grew up in yes. Vancouver. What are your memories of Vancouver as a kid? What sort of city was it when you were growing up? Um, well, my first memory, I was actually born in Toronto and my brother in Niagara Falls. So I, my first memories are of lots of snow, lots of snow, like six feet of snow. Um, but then uh, when I was four, we migrated to Vancouver and I remember the train trip across the country, which was the the car, that's, there's a car on that still exists, a train car, that is a double-decker and the the rooftop is open, so at night time you can see the stars and in the daytime you just see, you know, kilometres and kilometres of wheat fields <laughs> going across the country. And then, of course, through the Rocky Mountains is pretty spectacular. And were there lots of other immigrant families like yours? Yes, there was a lot of immigrant families. I think Vancouver now has a population of maybe two and a half million. Um, and when I grew up, it had, when I left at age 23, it had 800,000 people. So... Um, actually, the first time I went to Perth, it really reminded me of Vancouver because it's a city on the west coast of a continent which is left to its own devices and just gets along with things. And were you speaking Russian at home? Lucy? Yes, yes. Russian was my first language, um, but because I'm the youngest, once my my sister when my sister went to school, she only spoke Russian when she first started kindergarten, and. Um, teachers didn't really know how to communicate with her, so she used to draw pictures to tell them what she wanted. <laughs> Sandwich, toilet, <laughs> mum. <laughs> so by the time I came along, my, my brother and sister were, were speaking English to me, but we spoke Russian at home. So from a, a young age, you were sewing and knitting. Did you always dream that you would work in clothes or, or fabrics as you got older? I, no. I, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. But um, I guess I've just sort of gone with whatever comes my way. Well, how did your local baker in Vancouver get you your first job as a seamstress? Well, I did sew a lot of my own clothing and um, I was wearing, well, I always wore clothes that I made and she saw me one day and said, oh, you have such nice clothing, you know, and and I said, oh, I made them myself. And she, on another trip, she said, oh, I have a friend who's a couture designer. And 
um, she needs someone to work for her and, you know, I can get you this job. So I went along for the interview and I got the job. And how long did you last as a professional seamstress? Three days. What happened? <laughs> I couldn't rip seams fast enough and um, she fired me. Why, why were you having to rip seams? <laughs> um, because people, that she had a, a very vast clientele of all the socialites and, and wealthy people in, in Vancouver and as they aged or changed their figures, there would be alterations. And so we'd have to rip the scenes open to make them smaller or make them bigger. And um, so I, as I did at home, I carefully unpicked each seam with my stitch unpicker. and To protect the fabric. To protect the fabric, of course. And I thought there's no way I'm going to put a hole in fabric that my new boss is, you know, watching me. And then she grabbed the, the article out of my hands and just, like, she said, do it like this, and she just ripped the seams open. <laughs> and I was That must horrified. have hurt you, horrified <laughs> you. And I thought, if I try that, I'm going to rip the fabric, you know. <laughs> well, after this short-lived career as a couture seamstress, you trained as a draftsman. What does that mean? What is that role? Um, I trained in architectural, civil and structural um, drafting. I worked for an architect on her final project at university, doing all the plans for um, residential projects that she had. And then I got a job at the same place that my father worked at, BC Hydro, which is the big hydroelectric company, um, utility company in British Columbia. What was it like working in the same company as your father? Oh, I just loved it. I mean, I, I loved everything about um, drafting because you get to draw and you get to use your brain. <laughs> so, you know, for me, um, maths is like a puzzle and drawing the puzzle is even better. So you were building a, a career in Canada. What brought you to Australia the first time, Lucy? Um, I lost my job in Vancouver because there was an economic downturn and my department of 300 over the period of a week whittled down to eight. My father lost his job as well. Um, eventually I, I lost mine first, but he eventually lost his as well. And um, I thought, well, Everybody, like there were architects that were laying off staff as well. And I thought, well, anybody I'd had at that stage less than two years experience. And I thought, I'm not going to get the first job that comes along in Vancouver. And it's not easy for Canadians to work in America, nor did I want to go to America. And I didn't want to live in Toronto. And I just was kind of at a loose end and then I decided to come to Australia on a holiday. And was there work here in drafting? There was plenty of work here in drafting. And yeah. as someone who was trained as an architectural draftsperson, what did you make of the buildings, the architecture of this new place? Of course, in Vancouver, we live on the San Andreas Fault, so everything, most things are built in wood. Most uh, residentials built in wood, anybody who builds in brick or stone must be very wealthy because every time there's a quiver, you get cracks in your, <laughs> in your stonework. And when I came here, of course, there's so many red bricks. Actually, my first impression of flying in on a sunny day to Sydney was seeing all the red brick roofs um, as I was flying in that particular part of Sydney I just assumed that there was a law that all roofs in Australia had to be um, red tiles. <laughs> Do you remember your first side of the Opera House? Yes. It, um, 
continues to blow my mind. It, it's, it, it, I'm awestruck every time I see it. You had a, a few more adventures left in you, Lucy, although there was work available for you in Australia because you took off to Amsterdam. Yes. Could you speak Dutch? Uh, no. I met a fellow in Australia and I followed my heart to Amsterdam um, as he was posted there. And I always think, I think that everybody should at some point in their life get thrown in the deep end and live in a country where they don't know the language and attempt to learn it. I think it gives you a much better experience of the country that you're living in and really gets you to understand the the people. And I was there for about three months before I realised that Dutch people have to graduate high school with four languages minimum, one of them being Dutch, usually English, and then either French or Spanish or German or any other languages that they have on offer. So as soon as you you try and speak Dutch, they immediately switch to English. Or the other thing I notice is as it, it's difficult to speak a second language all the time because you're constantly thinking, so you get a tired brain. And I notice that sometimes I'd be out with friends and they'd be speaking English for the first hour and then they'd just slowly drift into Dutch and they're all laughing and making jokes and I'm sort of sitting there and thinking, okay, I've got to learn this language. So I did used to shop at, a like everybody shops at markets and food shopping, of course. There was one market in an area that I would cycle to every day and they had the huge market every day. My fridge in Amsterdam, as many people have, was about the size of a postage stamp. So you had to shop every day. <laughs> and um, I would go to this market and there was particularly this really good fruit and vegetable stand. So I would always like to buy their fruit and veg. But I noticed that every time I came that all the people working would just sort of turn their backs and start talking to each other. And I thought, what's wrong with me? Then shortly after that, on another trip, I thought, oh, they don't actually speak English that well because they've come from outside of Amsterdam, you know, farmers. Maybe English wasn't a choice that they made in school. So when I started learning Dutch and I went back to the market and then they saw that I could speak Dutch, they were very sort of enthralled and then they were really happy but then on the other hand the chicken shop that was on the next block from me every time I would come in they'd hear my accent immediately switch to English but I'd continue speaking Dutch and she would roll her eyes and I could hear her brain saying oh here's that woman who wants to speak Dutch. <laughs> I just want to sew you a chicken I'm not here for a language lesson. <laughs> so how were you introduced to the button business in Amsterdam? My landlords, um, we lived in a house with uh, four stories, of actually five stories, and we had the top two and they had the, the bottom three. And one of them knew that I was learning Dutch. And so he said, uh, he gave me this sheet of paper and said, you know, see if you can translate this. And so I was reading it and I took it to my Dutch teacher and and. She said, well, this is an invitation to a birthday party. And so I wasn't sure if I was invited or if I was just <laughs> being given a lesson. So it's so always unclear with Dutch people. <laughs> so I thought, well, if, if I am invited, um, I can't not go. <laughs> and um, so I decided to go and I thought, well, if they, I go and they look at me like, what are you doing here? I'll just leave. <laughs> So that party was, of course, a 40th birthday party and my landlords invited everybody on the street. So I met all of my neighbours that night 
um, you know, all the people that lived in the houses and owned the shops and, and everything. And Taya was one of the neighbours on the street. Taya lived, um, if I went out my front door and crossed the tiny street, I would uh, walk straight into her front door. And she lived in a shop and residence situation. And when I met her, she was just living there and she said, I'm going to open a lingerie shop. But the, she didn't have any money to open. She wanted to borrow money from the bank and the bank was like, no, I'm sorry, um, it's not going to work in that area. And then she, her brother had a shoe shop and he said, well, let's open another branch of the shoe shop. So she went back to the bank and said, can we open a shoe shop? And he said, no, the bank said, no, it's not a good, good area for that. And then there is a, uh, there was a ribbon and braid shop on the street and that was a, a family business for 75 years and 25 years earlier they'd stopped selling buttons because they wanted to specialise. And so Hans from the ribbon and braid shop said to Taya, well, why don't you open a button shop? So she went back to the bank and said, well, what about a button shop? And the bank said, great, how much money do you want? <laughs> Third time's a charm. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And so how quickly did you get involved with the shop itself, the well, button shop? Well, I, um, you know, of course, just every evening we'd talk on the street, we'd all meet in the cafe and, you know, for a half hour and sort of debrief the day and, and she'd say, okay, well, you know, it's getting along, coming along. And then she finally had the, the shop opening and the next day I, I came in to see how she was going, you know, you did she enjoy the opening, blah blah And she said, oh, I'm so tired. And I said, oh. And she said, I've got to go back to Spain. I need a holiday. <laughs> After one day. Yeah. <laughs> and I said to her, well, I mean, to, to be fair, she'd been working on it for four months. So, um, and having done it myself, it's it can be a little bit pressured. <laughs> but uh, I said, well, what are you going to do with the shop? And she said, oh, well, I was thinking of maybe asking you. And I said, yeah, you can ask me. And so I, I took the shop for two weeks while she went on holiday. And when she came back, we debriefed. And, and for the whole time that I was in Amsterdam, she sort of took me in as her silent non-financial partner. And we discussed everything and she taught me the entire business. Explain some of the business to me that you learnt in that shop, starting with the name Knoppen Winkle, which mm -hmm. sounds like something delightful out of a fairy story. Knoppen is button or buttons and Winkle is shop. So it was just called Buttons Shop. Buttons Shop. <laughs> it sounds very, very romantic in, in Dutch. In Dutch. <laughs> what did it look like inside? Um, it looked very much like my shop because they were both built by the same person. It's faux walnut and faux marble. And buttons on display or, or how is it set out? Is it like those haberdashery stores you used to visit as a child? No, nothing like that at all. Um, buttons in, I think in Europe, pretty much, well, there's two trains of thought. In, in Holland, buttons are definitely sold in plastic tubes with a single button on top. There's sort of older shops, um, particularly in France and Italy, where the buttons are all in boxes, cardboard boxes, but in those shops there's no self-service. So the idea of the tube and the button on the top allows for self-service so people can browse themselves and come to the counter with the, the tube and 
everything's there. And was the bank right to back this idea for buttons in, in the street? Did it do well? Were there customers coming in? Yes, absolutely. I mean, European shoppers are used to specialty shopping. So if they know they want some buttons, they go to a button shop or they'll go to the market where the button person is. And coincidentally, the main department store in Amsterdam, which was called Bayenkorf, Beehive, six months after the shop opened, the Knopfwinkel, the department store closed their haberdashery section. So, of course, we got all of that um, custom because we were only a few blocks away from the main centre in Amsterdam. Was there much for you and Taya to learn about buttons? I mean, were there secrets to the trade that you couldn't have known, you didn't know until you were involved in a button shop like that? Or was it just like selling any other item? What were, the, what were the mysteries of the button business that she initiated you into? I think the main mystery of the button business is where to get buttons. <laughs> so um, just Taya, Taya can, she, in her career, she has sold everything and she's very clever at doing that and she's very personable and she has exquisite taste so she knows how to present something well and that's probably the the main thing that she taught me um, was presentation counts and it particularly I knew for myself in Australia new world countries are not so good at specialty shopping they're used to sort of mall type shopping and department stores where you just go in and get everything you need so in order to entice people to come in you need the shop to look good. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Lucy, where did the idea to open your own button shop back in Australia come from? Well, I worked in the Knopfwinkel. I also worked in the ribbon and braid shop as a cleaner. So I also worked in the local cafe, and which is sort of like a brown bar cafe. So brown bar is very typical of old-style German and, and Dutch cafes where all the wood is dark brown and it's very cosy and there's carpets on the table and and it's just a style of decor and they're very very old school they serve food and they also serve drinks and so I thought when I was coming back to Australia I thought that I would open a brown bar style Amsterdam cafe and I realize now that I would have been 30 years too early so (laughs) I probably would have failed yeah it just it, basically, it it would translate to a small bar here. And Taya and Hans, the ribbon and braid shop owner, invited themselves to my house, which is very unlike Dutch people. They invite you out. They don't invite you to their house or invite themselves to yours. But um, I said, sure, I'll cook you dinner. And, and they both sort of ganged up on me and said, you shouldn't open a bar. You know, food goes off and it's just going to be a lot of hard work. And I had worked in hospitality as a youngster and Hans was I mean Taya was also she wanted me to open a button shop and and Hans was like just think about your worst customer is going to be a man a businessman 
and think about his wardrobe. He has at least 10 shirts, and those 10 shirts have at least 10 buttons. That's 100 buttons, and one day he's going to lose one. So there's your customer. Your, your worst customer is still going to buy a button. <laughs> so you were convinced that it was a viable business proposition back yes. in Australia. Yeah, well, then I came to Australia and said that same proposition, you know, that, that I was told to um, some male friends of mine here, and, and they said, oh, well, when I lose a button, I just throw the shirt away. So <laughs> I wasn't feeling too good, but anyway, I persevered. You persevered, but where did you get your stock from? What was the initial source of the buttons to fill your button shop? So it's I started buying buttons when I was still in Amsterdam, and uh, I went to a trade fair in Milan, and the trade fair listed people that were selling buttons. And it it wasn't the sort of the big sort of fashion trade fairs that I go to now. It was more sort of gift and accessories. So there were a couple of people selling buttons, but they weren't really interesting for me. And then there was this other woman listed and I came to her stand and she had all this costume jewellery, but I could see that there were components of glass buttons. In the costume jewellery? In the costume jewellery, as well as other things. And she, you know, glued beads and things together. And it was very interesting. It was very, you know, 80s. So I said to her, oh, I I noticed that in the catalogue, in the directory, that you were listed as having buttons. Do you have any buttons? And she said, oh, only old ones. And so my ears pricked up and I'm like, oh, do you do you have samples with you? And she said, oh, no, but I can get my colleague to bring the samples. And this was probably midday, and she said, can we meet back at 4 o'clock? And I said, certainly. So we went off and had lunch and came back at 4 o'clock. And the poor woman, I had no idea that they were actually, they're in Milan at the north of Italy, and her factory and premises and house were in Savona, which is in the Italian Riviera. So it was. So she'd had to drive back or send someone. She sent one of her colleagues two hours to drive and get the, the sample cards, and then two hours back. He would have been racing. <laughs> and what did they look like? What were the sample cards that she had able to show you? Well, the sample cards were all um, Czechoslovakian glass, actually correctly from Bohemia at that time, so Bohemian glass and Bohemian metal with crystals. And the stock was sort of 1900, 1910 to up until about 1950 or 1960. And I was just, you know, I'm so excited. Why? Why was that such an exciting range for you to see? What's so special about those sort of buttons? Um, well, they're, they're very unique. Um, the, the glass buttons are mostly pressed, so they're, they're press-moulded and very, very ornate and... Some of them were self-shanked with a glass self-shanked, so they're the ones that are a bit um, younger, sort of 40s to 60s, and then the other ones were with various types of metal shank. Metal. What's, uh, the, what's the shank? The shank is a little loop at the back. So you have, like, round shanks and you have box shanks in metal that are pressed into the glass while it's still a little bit molten. And the the metal shanks, the different types of metal shanks also dates the buttons. So I was was aware of what I was looking at and she just wanted to get rid of it because... How did she have them all? Well, it was her father's business and he'd sort of left her with a warehouse full of buttons that she was not interested in. 
<laughs> so she was she wanted to do costume jewelry, and so she was using them as components, but had far too many that she could use. And so, how many of her buttons did you want to buy, Lucy? I bought the entire warehouse, so twenty-one large boxes of glass and metal buttons. How did she react when you told her that you wanted to buy the lot? Oh, she was ecstatic. <laughs> so how do you go about getting 21 boxes of buttons from Italy to Australia? Well, they were first sent to Amsterdam, but only there were 21 boxes and I think only 16 arrived. So I thought, oh, she was such a lovely woman. I'm sure she's not trying to rip me off. But, you know, this is in the days when um, computers weren't really a thing and faxes and language were, you know, barriers in in a lot of written and spoken. I mean, hands and feet is great when you're with people, but trying to communicate over a telephone or in a fax was difficult. So anyway, the first 16 boxes came back from Amsterdam with us when we moved back. And then how did you go about getting the rest of your buttons? Well, the first thing I'll tell you that a button business is a lifestyle business. (laughs) What do you mean? It's not going to make you rich. (laughs) So if you budget well, you have an interesting lifestyle and um, you, you live frugally. So a year later when I went back on a, a buying trip, I had contacted her by fax and saying, you know, I'd like to meet with you. And she said, yes, please, please come. And so with my new partner, who's Dutch, yeah, we rent. We borrowed his parents' car and drove to Milan. And we drove there and we went to the trade fair. And then because we were being frugal, we decided not to stay overnight in Milan and we'd drive as far as we could and find a, a small town and, and stay there. Well, we didn't find a small town and it was getting very dark and somehow we ended up on a road we probably shouldn't have been on because the... I don't know if you've ever driven in Italy, but it can be chaotic. That's that's a polite word, yeah. But you you needed time out from the driving. We needed time out from the driving. And um, my husband, who um, has cycled all over Europe, just is used to, you know, camping on the side of the road. So we just pulled into a farmer's field and stayed overnight in this tiny car. So we were a little bit disheveled, but we thought, no problems, we'll get to Savona and it's on the Riviera so they'll have cabanas and you can rent a cabana and have a shower, etc. So we got up early and we get to Savona and we go to the beach and said, oh, we'd like to rent a cabana and they said, oh, sorry, no water, there's been a water main burst so there's no water. (laughs) So we had half a bottle of drinking water and not a large one and we just sort of Washed our faces. <laughs> you were bedraggled button buyers. <laughs> so <laughs> rather dishevelled, you know, and to meet this very um, lovely and uh, glamorous um, woman who lived in the palazzo, in the piazza in Savona. <laughs> and she said, oh, I'm so glad you came because the, there was a limit on the value that you could ship out of Italy. And she didn't have the the words to tell me that. And so I picked up the other five boxes. Tell me about that. It meant that you had the stock or or maybe the heart of the stock to begin your own button store in Mm -hmm. Sydney. How quickly did it take off? I mean, as you say, you weren't certain given that there's not the same experience with boutique buying and that with fast fashion people are as likely to throw away an item that's missing a button as to re-sew. 
When did you know you were on to a winner, Lucy? How long did it take? Well, because I'd worked with Tia and the Button Shop right from the beginning, the point that we got to at six months, from my experience of living and, and growing up in the new world, I thought that I would get to that same point after five years. So that's why I was very frugal, because I knew that it, it's not a, not a thing <laughs> that's going to take off. But I must say that my first day of trading was huge. Was huge. Yeah. Who was coming in? People were walking down the street and, you know, on King Street where we were, we were the last shop on that block. Three blocks further down there was another shop. But the rest were people that had had businesses and retired and just living at the back of their shop or students renting shops and living all in the front and curtains on the windows. So I think they were just glad to have something (laughs) open (laughs) That would have bought whatever you were selling. I know. If it's buttons, we'll buy buttons. <laughs> and I know because I was also astounded. I mean, I did I did um, send out press releases and I must say that um, Ita Buttrose sent me a very nice letter. She had her magazine, Ita, at that point and I invited her to the opening and she politely declined but sent me a lovely letter <laughs> wishing me all the best success for my shop. <laughs> so these buttons that you'd purchased from... This Grand Dam in Italy, these glass buttons originally from Bohemia, what happened to those once they made it back to Australia? Well, that was the initial stock that I opened the shop with. And in my mind, I had a huge amount of stock. But when I look at the images of the early shop, I'm a bit embarrassed at how few buttons I had. But um, yeah, it was the bulk of the stock. And Are they all gone now? I mean, this is 34 years much. or so. Yeah, they were so special to me and I had hundreds of them. So about three years into the shop, I realised that they were dwindling because I'd sold lots of them. And it happened that a customer came to the counter with a tube of buttons and, and I said, oh, these are really lovely. We talked about their history and that. And I said, how many would you like? And she said, oh, I'll take all of them. And my internal brain was thinking, all of them, I won't have any more left. What am I going to do? I can't talk about them to any, I can't show them to anyone else. So after she purchased those, I sort of went around the shop and just took a couple of each of the really special buttons. And I sort of continued doing that over the years. And even though I say that I'm not a collector, I have found myself with a collection of buttons. You can't always rely on running into an Italian with boxes and boxes of beautiful bohemian glass buttons to sell, though. Where where else do you source your buttons from, Lucy? Um, well, this is something that Tia taught me, is you just never know where you're going to find them. So at a market, particularly like the European markets, where the flea markets where they have a bit of everything, I do contact button manufacturers, yeah, sort of, Anywhere I go, I just look up buttons and see if there's a shop or if there's a market that's going to be on. How long back in human history did buttons first appear? What's the archaeology of the button? Probably the archaeology of a button that we recognise as buttons today is probably 2000 BC. 2000 BC? Mm -hmm. What would those buttons have been made out of? They were either stone or mother of pearl carved. Sometimes the stone buttons had a self-shank. Sometimes they had a metal shank on top. But they were usually found in burial grounds, so it's unclear whether the people wore them on 
clothing or whether they were just decorative and or whether they were only for decorative for funereal purposes. So buttons go way back and I guess the people using them then would have had all sorts of different names for them. When does the word button first appear in Europe? Yeah, well, it's interesting that what we say the term button comes from the French bouton and the word knopf in German is so that the two words bouton and knopf, if you go take that, the French and the German back into their root languages, both of those meanings mean to thrust forward or also bud-like, so like a small bud that is thrust forward. So the the root words come from there and then they came down to, you know, modern knopf and bouton. And how did the the introduction or more widespread introduction of buttons allow clothing to change? I mean, what can you do differently with clothing once you've got the possibility of a button? Um, with buttons, you can have more tightly fitting clothing um, because you can undo it and put it on, whereas you can't make a fitted garment and then try and get it on your person. <laughs> oh, if you've tried that, it's hard to get it back off again. That's right. <laughs> so the earliest buttons are a stone. What kind of materials and techniques were introduced, say, in the Renaissance in Europe? Well, everything. I mean, buttons go much further back than the Renaissance. The buttons came to Europe in the 12th century and they came back with the Crusaders from the Middle East. So the Middle East had clothing that particularly men had clothing, long sort of gowns with small sort of bud-like buttons from neck to ankle. And So they're a Middle Eastern invention. I hadn't realised that. Yes, yeah. So they came to Europe via the Crusaders who, you know, some some books I've read say they've brought them back and some say that they pillaged. <laughs> so the fine line. It's a fine line. The Crusades. <laughs> yes. And then once this concept of the button comes back to Europe, what do they start being made out of? Well, initially they're copying, so they're, they're making bud-like buttons. People who were in um, farmers and things could make those buttons out of wood or leather or, or bone or cloth. But Normally, like, the people who were really interested in new clothing were the nobility. So they, of course, wanted it to look much prettier and and much better than the normal people. So they started making buttons in precious metals with precious gemstones. How excessive did the nobility's use of buttons as buttons as decoration get in that period? Superbly excessive. There's one um, king of France who is purported to have at least 100 buttons made from diamonds. On the one item? On the one item, yes. And um, I think he spent in the terms, not in our money today, but in his time, spent like a million dollars per year on buttons. On buttons? Yes. A poor, humble button seller like you can only dream of such a king as a customer, Lucy. (laughs) And they even introduced rules around the use of buttons, the number of buttons. Yes, yeah, so buttons were, those kind of buttons were made by jewellers. So they had their own in-house jewellers and the, the kings and queens had, you know, were able to get the best buttons and then they dictated the levels of nobility that could have buttons, but all out of precious metals. And then, of course, the people who were making these buttons were thought, well, you know, I could make some for myself, but they weren't allowed to. <laughs> so they could have buttons made out of other materials. So they were really a mark of wealth and a mark of, of, wealth, of yes. nobility. 
Tell me about buttons and men's clothing. How were, were buttons being used in men's clothing by the beginning of the 18th century? Well, uh, men's fashion was, men were much more fitted with their clothing. And if you look at the history of fashion, there's a lot of fashion that is meant to show off the, the build of a man. And even like with bombast, which is padded areas to give you bigger shoulders and chest and a smaller waist and hips. And buttons can, can help with that by having fitted garments, whereas most women were laced up or or tied up. Buttons for women was a much later thing. So buttons were more associated with men's clothing? Absolutely. Than with women's? And very decorative buttons, I must say, like incredibly decorative to the point where if I tried to sell one of the buttons that I have in my collection that are um, new contemporary remakes of that, that they would just say I've got far too feminine and I, in my my internal head says well actually they're not they're very masculine. <laughs> Do you make a show of buttons on your own clothes Lucy? What's your attitude to a, a button? Do you want something discreet and functional or something showy? If I can I have something showy often the buttonholes um, aren't big enough if I have bought garments but I always like something that is a little different. And um, it's an occupational hazard that I change all the buttons on my clothing. And sometimes I'll just add buttons if they're decorative on something. How much of a change to an outfit can buttons make in your experience? Oh, amazing, amazing change. It's very subtle, but we discuss this with customers all the time. And, you know, what do they want from the, the garment? And one of the things that I know to be true is that if the button is right, the garment is fantastic. If the button is wrong, the garment is wrong. And the button doesn't have to be fantastic. It just has to be right. Give me an example of a right button for an outfit that you know of. Uh, well, actually, if I think about what I'm wearing myself today, it's a blouse with a geometric pattern and they had round black buttons on it. And I chose something that was a long bar that... that coincides and relates to the geometric pattern and it's just very subtle but um, and it's also in silver so black shirt with a geometric silver and lime pattern with a silver button which is very discreet but when you notice it it's it's right. Are there trends in buttons like are there buttons that are in fashion now that wouldn't have been 20 years ago? Um, it's very cyclical and um, because I've been in business for more than three decades, it takes about three decades for the same buttons to come around. <laughs> what's returning now? Well, what's returning now, which is interesting, I opened in the last recession. I opened in 1989 and um, gold buttons were a big thing. It's also a bit of a, a leftover from the 80s, the, the heyday of the 80s when gold buttons were all the thing. But it's also interesting to note that in a recession, people choose gold over silver. And that's something that's happening again. And are people more likely to, to re-sew buttons? Do you think that there's, you know, a move towards taking care of items in a recession rather than just throwing something out? Absolutely. People, you can you can update a garment with a new set of buttons, particularly if it had very dated buttons, which probably are great and should be taken off and, and put away because they'll come back again if you keep them long enough. <laughs> but, um, yeah, updating a wardrobe. Also, if you've got something that's your absolute favourite and 
it's a little bit, I won't say threadbare, but, you know, it's lost its luster and you still want to wear it and it fits you like a glove, just dress it down, you know, put those spectacular buttons on something else and just get something that's a little more casual. Of all the thousands of buttons you must have seen and bought and sold over the years, Lucy, are there ones that stand out in your mind as just exquisite buttons? Yes, my very favourite buttons that I have in the shop are um, hand-carved polyester from Italy. So this is a company which is third generation and the, f- the first generation started as a jewellery business and eventually went from fine jewellery to costume jewellery. And then the son came into the business and he also liked working in plastic and sort of with together with his father they started making carving plastic jewellery and, and things like that and then started making buttons. When I met him, the, the father of the second generation, the most exquisite things, hand-mixed hand polyesters so that each button is unique because of where the polyesters mix and they're sometimes stacked and layered and cut away and over-dyed and just spectacular and not small in size either. They, you know, so they often I will get as many sizes as I can, but some of them are quite large and spectacular. Is it sometimes hard to sell a button? You know, are there buttons that you've got in your shop that you'd quite like to keep? They're almost like an artwork. Or how does it feel for those buttons to go out into the world with a customer? Well, I think of all of the buttons that I have, I, I've purchased them all individually myself and I know their story, I know their backstory and I have them for a small time and they're like my children. <laughs> They, you know, I wish them well into the world. And, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see them go and I'm really ecstatic when customers love them as much as I do. Lucy, it's just a delight to talk about and think about. Thank you for, for sharing your story and, and some of the remarkable history of buttons. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. And Lucy's book is All Buttons Great and Small. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.